Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 474th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your host, Mason, joined by nobody this week. That's right, Spencer and Abe are unfortunately out sick. Abe has COVID. We wish you a speedy recovery, bud. And if you're a parent, you know how this one's going to be. Spencer's kids got sick. He got sick. So that means no Spencer this week on the show either. He's lost his voice. We hope both of you are back and healthy very soon so we can do another fun episode next week. But for now, it's just going to be me talking, doing the thing. And I guess we can instead have a guest on. This past weekend, I went up to Caldwell, Ohio and played in the Apex Gaming events. It was a very fun time. And afterwards, Ross, Merriam, and I were just sort of talking and hanging out. And during the conversation, I was like, dang, this should probably just be someone we have guests on the podcast. Ross is really smart and, you know, sort of has a very unique way about uh, approaching things and sort of talking about stuff. And I think listeners should get a lot out of it. And then this morning when everyone was like, hey, I don't think we can do the show, I was like, wait, let's see if we can get Ross. So... You know, I always say it, heroes don't always wear capes, so Ross was able to save the day and come on the show, so hopefully y'all are going to enjoy that. We just got back and recorded it, and I think it was really great. I can't wait for y'all to hear in just a minute, but before we do that, I do want to quickly say thank you to everyone who supported the show uh, via sharing or on patreon.com slash ccmtg. The show is always free. We can give back. The Patreon Discord is really happening. There's a lot of stuff going on there, and if you're a like-minded person, sort of with the always improving mindset, that might be a great place for you to go and to meet other people if maybe you don't have a really big local community. So it's a great way to support the show and also meet other players and grow. So with that out of the way, you can always find us on social media at CCMTG. Uh, That's going to link to everyone else on the show's uh, information. It's just me, so I don't want to list everyone's Twitter handle. And honestly, let's get to the star of the show, Ross Merriam. And now we have our special guest on this week's episode, Ross Merriam. Ross, if someone you know is going to be introducing you, how might best they start introducing you? Because I think of you as you know a man who drinks and knows things. But what might be the best way for like people in Magic to know you? Well, certainly through my work on the SCG tour and for Star City Games on the content side, that's always going to be where people know me most closely for Magic. So you know. Longtime SCG tour grinder and uh, co-host of, of Versus Live and longtime columnist for Star City Games. I think that trifecta just about covers it. Yeah, and you you competed sort of you know for the people who weren't around when SCG was because it's it's crazy to think that's like you know a whole different era now. But you know you competed in a lot of the players' championships. You grinded the tour. You did very well for yourself. You've also played. You know, lots of people I think know you from SCG. But we were talking a little bit about last night at the Apex event where you know you've played lots of pro tours and you know you've done more than just SCGs. And so you're really someone who's been playing for a long time. And when did you start playing? And how did your sort of journey with improving get started? Nailing down a, a particular time when I started playing is, is a kind of interesting question in my taste because my first exposure to Magic came through my older brother who played when, uh, just played casually when he was in middle school. And so I would have, and this would have been like the mid 90s. Um, and I would just play with him around the house, um, but I never really got into it myself. And he quit after a couple of years. And I picked up the game again by myself when I was in eighth grade. So this would have been the 2001-2002 school years, fall of 01. Uh, Odyssey was the most recent set. And I was going to a new middle school that had just opened in my part of Connecticut. It was supposed to be super math science and technology focused. 
every single classroom had, you know, four or five, I think it was Pentium three computers for people that remember the, you know, that era of computing technology. And, you know, obviously going to a new school that was in a different city. Uh, I met a lot of new people and the friend group that I made were all into magic. So I started playing by myself then. So usually when I'm asked this question, I give that time frame, 2001. But technically, I've been you know exposed to the game since I was very young. I started playing FNMs at my local store towards the end of that school year, so like spring of 02. And then I, I got my DCI card to start playing sanctioned events in at regionals in May of 2003. So competitively, I would say I've been playing for about 20 years. Awesome. And when did you sort of make the step towards winning to like, you know, you mentioned you're playing locally with your friends, and you're doing FNM type stuff, but what was sort of the thing that motivated you and made you want to start taking that step towards things like, you know, 2Ks and, you know, SCGs at the time soon thereafter, and then, you know, GPs? What, what was sort of the, the spark that made you want to go down that route? Well, my friends and I, and I had several different friend groups with Magic uh, while I was younger, you know, we would go to occasional PTQs and local Grand Prix and things like that. Uh, and so I racked up a few, you know, PTQ top eights over the years, but I never was going to them consistently, you know, to the point where I would classify myself as a quote unquote grinder um, through the, the 2000s. And then when I was in college in the late 2000s, I sort of took a step back from playing and focused more on my studies. And I had planned to uh, go to graduate school. I was going to get you know, a PhD in some mathematical field uh, because that's what my undergraduate degree is in. But I sort of realized uh, over the summer after I graduated that I wasn't really passionate enough to want to do that. So I, uh, I, I dropped out quite early. And then I had that you know, stereotypical post-grad malaise where I really wasn't doing anything. And magic was a natural you know fill to that space i didn't really intend to you know turn it into what it has become uh but uh you know with the the scg tour emerged around that time in the early 2010s and i ended up just sort of going to enough tournaments and doing well at enough tournaments and and it grew from there so there wasn't really anything intentional on my part up until the you know mid 2010s when I had already established myself as a top player on the SCG tour, it was just a you know desire not to work a real job. <laughs> <laughs> I respect and love the honesty. So you know you just mentioned there. So the mid around the mid 2010s, Ross is sort of an established and top SCG player, and you can watch you know lots of feature matches of Ross after this one. Uh, after you're done here, if you want to watch one, but. Uh, what was sort of the beginning of the stepping stones and what were, you know, when you look back, what was like a huge sort of level up moment and a step for you when it came to, you know, being from like Ross, the person who goes to the events to someone who's like, ah, oh, I've got to play against Ross Miriam this round. The first big level up of, uh, moment for me was my first uh, STG tour win. Back then it was called the open series. And uh, it's a little stereotypical to point to a tournament that you won, but in this case, there's a, a specific circumstance around it. So this was a this was an invitational weekend. It was in Indianapolis. This is actually the first. This was the first Magic tournament that I paid for a flight to go to. I had I had played one foreign pro tour at this point, uh, the Cowboy Pro Tour in Paris. 
Uh, so, you know, Watsy paid for my flight for that one. So this is the first time where I said, you know what? I'm going to shell out a couple hundred bucks. I'm going to fly to Indianapolis to play this, uh, this invitational. And this was the this is June of 2012. And I was playing blue, white, Delver and standard, you know, one of the legendary decks of standards past guys to St. Draft, Delver of Secrets, a lot of Frexy Mana Spells, a bunch of Broken Cantrips, Mana Leak, uh, and so forth. And I played that deck for months. I was very comfortable with it. And my Legacy deck was sort of irrelevant. Uh, but I show up to the Invitational feeling good. I played Bloy Delver at the previous Invitational in about 701 in the standard portion of it. And uh, this was around the time where, uh, I don't know if you remember this, this might have been before your time, but there was a brief period where the sideboard strategy of all the Blue-White Delver decks was to morph into a sort of control deck. So they usually had some sort of six-drop creature as a two-of, usually Consecrated Sphinx, but sometimes it's a Sun Titan or a Frost Titan, you know, weird creatures like that, and some Wrath of Gods or Day of Judgments, whichever, you know, Wrath effect was in the, in the format. And you would, you know, take out your Delver of Secrets and morph into this kind of control deck that had a really low land count. And you made up for it with all the cantrips. And I wasn't super comfortable playing that kind of strategy at the time, but in my head, that's what all the best players were doing. That was the thing to do. And so I did it. And I went 0-4 drop in the standard portion of the Invitational. So I didn't even play Legacy during the Invitational. Oof. And, I, you know, I was feeling pretty distraught. And uh, one of the people I was staying with, uh, a Massachusetts grinder, Adam Snook, and uh, had also done poorly in the Invitational, so he was dropped. And I made him go back to our hotel room and just play Delver Mirrors against me for like four hours all, all afternoon while everybody else was finishing day one of the tournament because the next day was a standard open. That's how, you know, how the Invitational weekends worked. And I decided, you know what, I don't like this control plan. I'm not comfortable with it. I am going to make a much more aggressive plan, which I dubbed the jam plan <laughs> because I like playing more aggressively. So I completely rebuilt the sideboard, retuned the main deck to align with the sun and, you know, played the, the, uh, what ended up being a 10 round, you know, a standard open the next day, won the open. It was my first trophy on the tour. And that, so it was a very, you know, affirming event because I deviated from the norm in a way that I thought was going to be more catered to my skill set, and it, you know it, it worked out quite well. So uh, I think there's something to be said for understanding yourself and your strengths and weaknesses, and playing to those strengths and weaknesses as best you can. Uh, obviously, you'd like to not have any weaknesses, and uh, I think you know there's been some advice over the years where uh, that I think is bad advice. You know, mainly about you know expanding your range. That the, the best player should be able to play any kind of deck at an incredibly high level, and it's just unrealistic. We can't all be that good. So you got to understand where your strengths and weaknesses are and play to those. And I did that then, and that's a lesson that I've carried forward in the years since. I really like that. It really sparks two questions for me. So the first one I want to kind of ask is, if you know, and I'll think about how I would answer this as well, but like. If someone's listening, like, okay, I love what Ross just said. That makes sense. How do I start to identify my strengths and weaknesses if maybe I'm someone who's, like, a newer competitive player where I'm really trying to take that level up moment? It's like, okay, you know, I've been the FNM in boss. I've been the local guy, and I'm trying to, like, 
take that step and become the player in the area? Like, how do you start identifying those things? Because I would say personally, winning and losing isn't exactly the best indicator to know what you're good at, right? I, I would agree. And I think a lot of this comes down to talking with other people and getting other opinions and learning other opinions. So you're not going to be able to understand, you know, the all of the options available before you if, you know, you have some sort of blind spot where you always make a certain play in a certain situation, you know, you know, like bolting a turn one bird, which I think is generally good to do. And, uh, but, you know, sometimes not. So you're not, if you, if you stick to those kinds of uh, rigid heuristics, you're never going to learn the nuances and when to deviate from them. So I think, you know, the best way to keep your mind open to uh, seeing the, the different possibilities before you is to consult with other people because they're going to come at it from a different perspective and likely see things that you don't see. So, you know, there's a lot of things about practice and, and tournament preparation that I think is rather shallow in Magic. You know, players really just, you know, value how many games they're able to jam before a tournament, and they just want to play as many as possible, as quickly as possible. I would rather play fewer games, but get a lot of information and a lot of valuable, you know, learning out, out of each one of them. And that comes from, you know, deep, thoughtful analysis, both by yourself and with other people. Um, and as far as using that to then examine, you know, your strengths and weaknesses, the biggest thing is being honest with yourself. I think for the most part, people understand what they're good and bad. At. So th there is no real mystery in determining it. It's just having the humility to be honest with yourself about it and say, you know what, I'm not so good at this aspect. You know, I need help sideboarding against aggressive decks, you know, or I need help, you know, playing to my outs when I'm behind so I can, you know, steal a few more wins here or there over the course of a long tournament. And there, you know, there's a lot of ego around in the, the Magic community. Uh, and with ego comes an unwillingness to admit when you have a weakness or when you're wrong. So you really have to check your ego at the door if you want to improve at the highest level. Yeah, I love a lot what you said there, and it really made me want to sort of uh, bring in the next part, so it's so beautiful I transitioned it, but you mentioned about testing, and you sort of mentioned something that you know we on the show, and especially me, really harp on a lot, that Magic players don't actually test very effectively, right? They really value winning and losing, and they just kind of play a lot of games, and they don't really do more, so I'm really interested, because this is actually something I don't think you and I have really spoken about before, so... I would love to hear sort of the way you like to approach it. I know you just mentioned you have some thoughtful conversation and reflection, but maybe if there's more to it than that, you know, feel free to expand as much or as little as you like. But I'm really curious about that because that's something we really harp on that, like, it should be a process. And you should go in with questions, reflect on the games, and think about is this the way things actually play out at the bare minimum, you know, when it comes to practice, let alone all the other things you should be doing. Yeah, so uh, as far as how I like to prepare for things and the way I think it's best to, I would re refer people to the you know, brief winner's interview I did with Dawn Delosier on Saturday after she won the, the 5K modern event at Apex. And, you know, I talked to her about, you know, whether Rakdos, she was playing Rakdos folk, and I talked to her about and asked her whether Rakdos was a deck that she'd been playing for a while or something she picked up more recently, you know, due to its recent success. And she said that 
on Tuesday, she had planned to play a different deck. And Andrew Ellenbogen actually sourced a copy of Rakdos and, you know, convinced her to play the deck. And so she had, you know, three or four days to prepare and did a lot of, you know, watching of, of gameplay videos that are put, that put out by other people. And that's where I always start as step one is doing my homework and doing some research. You know, uh, uh, and I don't understand why other people are, are so averse to it, because if you're starting with a brand new deck that you've never played before, there are going to be a lot of things that you're going to spend time figuring out that other people have already figured out. And that, so if you just watch, you know, players that you trust and that have experience with these decks, whoever they may be, you know, and, you know, get content through their Patreons or YouTube and you know, various other sources, you can achieve a certain low baseline pretty quickly and much faster than you would by just playing games on your own. And then from that baseline, you know, after I've done the research, I start to think about where I can, you know, improve the deck or, or you know, what weaknesses that I think the deck has that I can improve. And when I start playing games, I play them with the idea of looking out for certain things. You know, what are the things that worry me? Is the mana base a little sketchy? Uh, you know, am I short cheap removal spells for Raghavan in a modern deck? Or am I, you know, short interaction for a Lotus Field combo in a Pioneer deck? So I, before I even start testing, in my head, I have this idea of this, the questions that I still have that are unanswered about the deck. And so I'm testing with answering those questions in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's just jamming leagues, you know, and then... Towards the end, you know, as I get closer to a tournament, I like to have more focus testing with, you know, someone I know on the other end where I can say, here's the matchup that I need a few more games in, or here's the cyborg card I want or cyborg plan I want to test out in a certain matchup. So sort of a three-phase process where you do the homework, then you have your sort of level one questions that you answer through your own private testing, and then you fill in the gaps that your private testing wasn't able to fill with really focused testing at the end. I really like that. And I think that's a really great way for someone to get into it and start going in. One of the things I really like about it is I always tell people, you know, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, Ross, is, you know, what do you think is the more effective? Your 101st game playing, you know, uh, Abzan Aggro in Standard or spending 30 minutes and, like, reading over the deck list and thinking about, like, okay, this is, like, you know, the last couple weeks of Standard results. How would they sideboard against me? What are they doing? You know, and looking over sort of all those lists and taking them in to think about it. Stuff like that and what you talked about, I think, are much better ways to go about practicing and are something you really hit on is there's, like, okay, there are key interaction points, right? I'm a week to Ragavan in Modern is a great one, right? That's a bar every single deck has to pass. If you can't survive a Ragavan hit or you can't, you know, outdo a Ragavan in some way, then your deck is going to have a real issue and it needs, you know, needs some way to solve it. Maybe it's post-board or whatever. Maybe it's some weird plan, but you have to have something for it. And there are lots of different ways to go about trying to figure that out. But it doesn't always have to be playing, right? You can think about some of these things beforehand and try and start theory crafting a little bit. I completely agree. And I, I do a lot of theory crafting in my preparation. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's a skill that I have built up o- over many years. It's something I think I'm pretty good at because I've always 
operated a lot better when I understand the big picture. So I, I have to have an understanding of the decks I'm facing and the overall texture of the metagame and my own deck strategy and how I can adjust that strategy from matchup to matchup. And once I have an understanding of the options before me and the problems that I'm facing, then to me, figuring out what the optimal route to go is generally pretty easy, or at least figuring out a hypothesis, right? Mm -hmm. You know, once I see the deck that's a problem, whatever matchup it may be, I say, you know, it's a problem for X, Y, and Z. We can solve that problem with A, B, and C in the sideboard. And then you test the ABC sideboard plan and it, you, you, it's like middle school, you know, scientific method, you know, and devise a hypothesis, you know, build an experiment, which is effectively, you know, designing your testing in a certain way, which is another thing I think people don't do enough of where, you know, if you're trying to test out a certain cyborg plan, why don't you just test games where you always throw your cyborg cards? Oh my God. <laughs> yes. I tell people, uh, the first thing I tell people in coaching Ross, that they have a local play group is y'all are not cheating enough. Put the cards in your hand. No one needs to actually draw. You know, like you can just make sure to actually be effective with your time. Sorry. It's something that like, I feel like oh, yeah. talks about and it's just like, you're allowed to do it. It's okay. Just, you know, don't cheat in actual tournaments. <laughs> yeah. I have been on multiple pro tour testing teams where everybody just wants to test on MTGO because that's what they're used to. And I tell them, why aren't we all just testing on Magic Workstation? I don't even know if that still exists. Mm -hmm. uh, what, it, was, you know, it was effectively a program that acted like a virtual card table, and you loaded all of the sets. So you could just build every deck, you know, and you, you controlled everything. There was no rules engine to it. So you could look at your deck and put a card into your hand if you wanted to start with that card in your hand and, you know, do everything that you could do in paper testing, but it would shuffle for you. And so you got to do, you know, you got all the advantages and flexibility of paper testing with none of the, you know, cumbersome nature of handling physical cards. And every time I suggested it, everybody looked at me like I had six heads on Magic Workstation. Why would we ever do that? Mm -hmm. And the two or three people that I managed to convince to do it with me were convinced immediately that mm -hmm. it, it was the best way to do it. Yep. It's I'm very smart, and if everybody listened to me, the world would be a better place. Wow. That's my point. Well, I, I, the other point I'm picking up is I didn't realize how similar we were about this process because, you know, we, it's just, we're sort of uh, in different, like, I kind of, you know, came in as things were sort of going out, and then, you know, we've just been in different ponds as it great was. minds think alike mason that's so true you know ghosts <laughs> in a hurry is what i hear so uh this makes sense that we found each other no but uh speaking of finding something one of the things that you and i actually talked about after the apex event we just both got back from this past weekend uh was deck selection yesterday and kind of sparked this you know sort of impromptu guesting episode and i would really love to talk to you about sort of the process in which you go about selecting decks and maybe some of the you know fallacies or things that uh you think about when people come to conclusion about decks and this might be a bit more of a conversation than an interview portion part of it but i think it'd be really helpful for listeners because it's something that i've been thinking about a lot and to be fair we did actually just do an episode about two months ago uh, Ross, what the ideas that I have is called being a reasonable deck gamer. And uh, what I told everyone on the show, and it is a true story, is when I first started grinding in 2019 and I was setting up to grind in 2020 and I wanted to get buys, I uh, always picked a deck that was reasonable. And I think I even maybe mentioned you in the example, but the idea is like, you know, if I walk up and Edgar Magalhaes and Ross Merriam are there and I say, you know, I'm playing this deck, they don't laugh or they don't think twice, you know, like I have a good stock deck. 
at minimum, right? And that was my bar. I might not play the best deck, but no matter what, I'm going to have a good deck with good sideboard plans. And if you do scoff, I'm going to be able to defend myself, right? And that was sort of uh, this idea that we sort of sparked, but there's definitely way more to it than that. And we kind of hinted at touching on that. And this is sort of, you know, part of that series, I think. So I'd love to have that conversation with you and sort of where your head goes to when you hear those things. I have a very similar opinion to the one you just espoused. Uh, the way I think about it uh, is I think the idea of a deck being well-positioned, which is what everybody, that's sort of everyone's goal when they're picking a deck. They want a deck that is well-positioned for the metagame, right? Mm -hmm. And that idea is incomplete. Mm -hmm. And it's incomplete because what it means in a literal sense is that this deck is better than it otherwise would be because of the specific circumstances of the current metagame. So when you say a deck is well-positioned, what you're talking about is the delta between its current goodness, however you would measure that, and its average goodness across an infinite range of metagames, right? You're talking about that delta. But if that deck is starting from a very low base, that average range, then the delta needs to be huge in order for it to recoup its natural disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Whereas a deck that is naturally very powerful doesn't need to be that well positioned in order to actually be good. So what you're actually trying to select is the best deck, but the best deck is a combination of your baseline power level and your baseline goodness, mm -hmm. as well as your, well, you know, the, however you would measure your well positionedness. It's the sum of those two things. So you have to take into account both variables. So when you say, you know, I'm always going to play a deck that is, you know, at least reasonable, to me, what you're saying is I'm always going to play a deck that has a certain baseline goodness, however you might measure that. And I agree. I tried to do the same thing. You know, I can think a deck that, you know, is well positioned, but it's just so underpowered that I'm not willing to play it. I'm going to look for a deck that might be slightly less well positioned, but is significantly more powerful because in any big you know, tournament you play, you run into a lot of variants. You can metagame as much as you want. You're going to play Joe Schmo you know, with their deck from three months ago in round three. And if you can't beat that guy, then you have no business being at the tournament. No, I actually really love that. And I think uh, it's possibly, you know, once again, shout out to Apex this past weekend. We saw a Bant version of the Lotus Field deck that had the Beanstalk added. And I think the uh, Up the Beanstalk was a big get for that deck and maybe solved some of these problems. But a huge problem I had with the Lotus Field control deck before recently, and maybe still do, we'll have to see how Testa goes. But uh, it was that the deck was like very cumbersome and clunky and really relied on sort of getting a Lotus Field early and had, you know, its average mana value in the deck was like five. And you're like a control deck and you're really counting on these sweepers to do a lot of work. And if your opponent, you know, was playing a proactive deck, you could sometimes just get run over if your draw didn't come together. Also, you just didn't really come out uh, like work out very well and for control decks you know there's some out of obviously spells lining up but a lot of times they can sort of just keep cards that interact and then you know really good ones at least can sort of turn the corner and win the game right and people would say well i'm playing lotus field control because it's so good against racto sacrifice it's so good against mono green 
And those two decks are kind of like the peak of power right now in Pioneer, right? Maybe a little bit of debate there, but Mono Green for sure, if it's on the play, I don't care how good you think your matchup is, Elf into Kiora into another Elf is probably going to beat you if there's any follow-up, right? And that sort of fail rate is underappreciated by players. Oh, it definitely is. And, you know, players get very simplistic in their justification when they say things like, I'm playing this because it has a good matchup against the supposed best deck or most popular deck in the room. You know, what? And no matter how good that matchup is, that deck is only 20% of the field. You're effectively making a decision based on one-fifth of what's going on. And, uh, you know, if your matchups against the rest of the field aren't good, that's a problem. So people make a lot of incomplete arguments in order to justify the decision that they want to make. And it's usually justifying them playing the deck that they like or the deck that they have cards for or could borrow cards for. And, you know, card availability aside, because that is a legitimate reason to you know, not play certain decks, um, they, I think Magic players would be, uh, most Magic players would be very helped by just sort of learning baseline rhetoric and understanding what a complete argument is. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that my degree is in math and, you know, I was a low level PTP grinder in my teens and I queued for a pro tour within six months of graduating college. And I could tell that I was analyzing things at a higher level than I was before, despite having played a lot of magic when I was in college and I really think it was just the skills that I had built in terms of problem solving and argument building, you know, sort of proof writing that helped me understand things and, you know, maybe see holes in my thinking that were there that I couldn't see before and level up as a result. So I always tell people that I got significantly better at magic over those four years, despite not playing a whole lot. And, uh, you know, if other players built those skills too, they uh, they get a lot better as well. Yeah, I have to agree. I, I think I think there's a lot that goes on deck selection, and I think uh, you know, sort of the I don't know. To me, the the answer is really is the idea of thinking about and metagaming and coming up with a solution is often a lot of the fun, right? Like it's like, oh, how am I going to solve this problem, right? Mason keeps playing mono green, you know. Like, how am I going to beat that deck? Okay, I'm going to you know play this black red creativity deck you know or whatever right and like and so figuring out those puzzles is really cool and that's like a fun thing to do but so often you know players uh don't do all the work right and it's like okay well you've beat mono green you know it's 10 percent of the room or whatever because we live in the real world you know in open tournaments where not everyone's going to be incentivized to play the best deck where they don't want to play the best deck where they think it's miserable like mono green so they just don't play it you know i've seen plenty of strong players just not play green because they think it's miserable you know and that's just a reality of the world we live in oh i actively look to avoid playing green because i really don't want to play mirrors are you, so you're scared just of mirrors? Just I'm not scared. Them. I think I'd be fine at them. I would just be miserable. Sure. Interesting. And I'm at a point in my career where I can sacrifice some equity for my own happiness. Yeah. And I, I do think understanding where you're at with things too is like, and like where your like your goals are is important. Like what Ross just said there, right? Like Ross has played a bunch. He's very skilled. He can also make up some points, but also like, you know, maybe Ross is just like, yeah, I'm playing this RCQ because it's around the corner from my house. And 
yes, maybe green is the best deck to play, but I'd rather, you know, play spirits and be happy, you know? And I learned this lesson a long time ago. Do you remember during KCI summer when Sam Pardee, Matt Nass, and Beckstrom just, like, couldn't lose a GP? And they just top eighted all of them playing KCI? Yes. Yeah, I, it, I was just affirming. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a crazy time, right? And in that period, one of the GPs that got top eight near the end uh, Sam Pardee's playing Spirits, and he ends up top eighting, and they interview him, and they go, Sam, you know, y'all have mastered KCI, you have different tech every week, you figured it out, you know, what what made you switch to Spirits? Was it a metagame thing? Like, you know, did you think you finally, like, you know, the whole world's on KCI, so it's time to switch, and Sam just kind of shrugs and goes, yeah, Spirits is a lot of fun, I kind of got bored playing KCI, you know? <laughs> it's a real answer, you know? He was a platinum pro, the highest thing you could be at the time. Yeah, so, so all the advice that I give to people is under the guise that they're just trying to maximize their equity in a tournament. But if you want to make decisions for your own personal well-being, you know, do it. Just understand that you're sacrificing some equity to do so. And if you're okay with that, fine. Yeah, it's totally cool to be like, I want to win, but I want to win on like my terms. Where like, I want to do the best I can, but I refuse to play green and I lose 5% equity, so I lose 5% equity. I just use green because Abe and I here on the show just... And Spencer, too, but we all just bang the green drum like crazy, and we're doing everything we can yeah. because, you know, conspiracy theory, if we get enough people to play it, Ross, then maybe something will happen. You know what I mean? So we, we've got to be doing our part. You know, it's, it's a collective group effort thing. Maybe we could talk more about that later. But regardless, uh, you know, that is something that you can do and be okay with, right? And that is fine. Uh, but, you know, we are sort of, you know, as always in the show, don't forget, like, we are assuming if you're listening to Constructive Criticism that your goal is to maximize winning. And it is cool to have different goals, and it is okay to have other goals. And if it sounds like we're not saying it that way, one, never our intent. And two, that's just because we're sort of targeting a certain thing. And that's cool if your goals differ. And also, this is the coolest thing, Ross. They can differ for a weekend, right? I can just be like, hey, I'm going up to Apex this weekend. I'm going to drink with my buddy Ross, and I'm playing Lutri Control. And I'm getting that round one feature, and I'm going to make his drama commentary hard. You know, and like, that's, <laughs> that's a fine yeah. goal. Yeah. Oh. Especially when you're grinding tournaments week in, week out, you do sometimes need a palate cleanser. You know, I, I was that person earlier in my career where I just picked a deck and I played it for months and months on end. You know, but back in the day when the SCG tour was standard on Saturday, Legacy on Sunday, I played Blue White Delver and Green White Maverick for, I want to say, about six straight months from March to September, you know, all two to three weekends a month. I would change two to three cards in both decks every week. I would, you know, and, and that was it. I just played the, the exact same decks every time. Now I mix it up a little bit more, except when I find a deck that's really sweet, like Just Guy Breach and Modern. But I've, you know, danced around a lot more in Pioneer. And, and you know, sometimes you just you know, need to play something totally. fun. Well, now we sort of got, you know, our uh, our casual Timmy part out of the way, uh, jokes aside. I, I wanna, do want to go back really quick about deck selection. And, um, Specifically, a little bit maybe about Standard 2, because that is something that's coming up, right? Like, Standard has not yeah. been a focal point of Magic for about three years now. But, you know, we're at the start of the Modern season. We both love Modern. You know, it's my favorite format. Uh, but Standard is coming, and some things like this might be helpful, because a lot of people just haven't ever competed in Standard. And Standard's a spot where deck selection and knowing how to go about these things matter so, so much. So what are some of the ways you go about that, Ross, and that are maybe a little bit different, and you can actually do things in Standard? Yeah, so in my deck selection process, you know, regardless of the format, step one is to establish that 
baseline goodness or baseline power level. And so, you know, I effectively put decks into one of two categories. Is it good enough to be in consideration or, or, or is it not? And it's a subjective, you know, rating. There are, you know, decks that people win tournaments with that I would never play in a million years. And there are, you know, decks that aren't very popular that I would gladly play. So, uh, you know, that's sort of a, a skill and an intuition that you have to build yourself over uh, you know, years of trial and error. But step one is what are the decks that I, you know, I'm even going to consider? And I come up with that bank of decks. And that's usually just generally the best decks in, in the format, you know, five or ten of them. But I also go through, you know, the various fringe decks. Because I find frequently that there are fringe decks that, you know, ha just haven't been tuned well and are missing a little something. And if I look at a deck and I think it has some potential, I might put in some work on it. This is where I think it's important to just generally play a lot with a lot of different decks. It's one of the things that Versus Live helped me with. It just exposed me to a lot of different decks. It's actually where I first saw Just Guy Breach. And Corey played it <laughs> against me in, in, on a Versus Live video, and I had never seen it before. And it looked really good. So I think this deck's actually you know, kind of busted. And you know, months later, I was playing it myself. So having some you know exposure to a lot of different decks can help you figure out which ones you think are above that line and which ones you think are below that line. But once you establish that above the line group, then you can start think, you know going ahead and thinking which of these decks is actually well positioned. So you know better than its baseline goodness in the current metagame, which are worse than that. Uh, based on you know the current medicine conditions, and that will further narrow down my list. And the, you know that's sort of the you know the rough process that I'll go through. Mm -hmm. Well, you know by the end of that, I'll usually have it down to two, three, or four decks. Yeah, and then one of the kind of cool things about Sam that I know you can definitely speak to is once you kind of have a metagame, it's a lot different than other formats, right? Like in Pioneer and Modern, one it's very expensive. Like just for the let's use Modern as an example, right? If Dross, you want to change decks or whatever, and you don't have, you know, a vast collection or don't have friends that can borrow cards, we're talking a minimum five, six hundred dollars to change decks, right? Uh, and in standard, that's not really the case, right? It's five or six hundred dollars quite often to have, you know, two to three of the top decks. And the top decks sort of happen in the removal and the metagame is actually like the pool of cards is so much smaller than in modern that players can't always answer everything all the time, right? So, for example, currently in Modern, if you try to play a creature, Solitude, Fury, Leyline, Binding, and Holy Heat, those four cards are going to put so much pressure on your creatures, there's only certain ones that can get played, right? But in Standard, your removal spells are a lot different. So, you might have something like Ultimate Price be the best removal spell in Standard, right? Destroy, target, monocolored creature. And if every deck's playing Ultimate Price, you might be like, listen... You know, this deck has a lot of gold creatures. It seems really well positioned against what else the other parts of the deck is doing. I maybe want to play this on this week, you know? And it sort of goes back to how we started all this, right? That deck maybe has a slightly lower uh, base power than maybe this ultimate price deck we talked about. But the delta and everything's made up because of all the other factors, right? And people can actually play those decks and metagames are much smaller, right? If it's a five deck metagame, you know, and let's say one deck is 30% of the field or whatever, it actually happens, you know, like there might be smaller percentages, et cetera, because there are just less cards to be played, right? Compared to modern Pioneer, where, you know, if someone told me they want a modern RCQ with like any deck off the first, you know, 20 decks on Goldfish, I probably wouldn't bat an eye at any of them. You know, it'd be like, that's dope. What was their sideboard like, you know? In standard, if you told me we get, get past, like, you know, maybe the second line of decks or whatever, I'm getting really surprised, 
right? And that's sort of a completely different thing in those kind of smaller pool formats. Yeah, it definitely tends to narrow because it's a lower baseline power level format. And that can create some decks that are really just at the top. Um, but if you don't have those decks, if it's a, a more balanced standard format, then you get to a situation where the baseline power of different decks is relatively flat and there's not much edge to be gained there. So you're going to gain a much higher percentage of your overall edge from deck selection via picking a deck that is well positioned. It's that delta that ends up mattering. So there's a lot of standard environments where switching decks week to week ends up being quite beneficial. And one of the tricky parts of standard is figuring out if this is a time to switch decks or if it's a time to lock in on one deck and play it week in and week out. And that's part of the fun and, you know, why a lot of players have a lot of love for standard, including our, you know, one of our hosts, Spencer, I think is really good at sort of like, okay, this week it's like kind of that flat parallel we're talking about. I think X is the best thing for these reasons, switches to it, and then, you know, it's off it by the next week or whatever, right? Just had a moment in sun, I'm playing it. Maybe he loves it, plays a little bit longer, but for the most part, just like does its thing, gets out, you know? And that is like a big part of it. So um, that's something to kind of look forward to, you know, if you're newer. I know there's a lot of people who sort of got in during the COVID boom of Arena, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about that on the show. But Ross, before we sort of start wrapping up here, do you have any other thoughts or things that you want to talk about deck selection? I kind of, you know, led the charge here, but I'd love to let you, you know, have a moment to say anything about that. We're just improving in magic in general. Yeah. So the, there's one last thing about deck selection and, uh, you know, one last element of my process. And it harkens back to what I said about understanding your own strengths and weaknesses and playing to them. And so my, you know, sort of internal metric for how good decks are is always going to be biased by how well I think they fit my strengths and weaknesses. So personally, I generally avoid, uh, you know, the most controlling decks in a format. I like decks that are very proactive. I like decks that can punish people when they stumble because, you know, regardless of the matchup, people can stumble. They can mulligan to five. They can miss a land drop. And I always want to play decks that consistently punish uh, those missteps from my opponents. And I highly value flexibility. So I, I really try to avoid linear decks unless I think it's an incredibly good weekend for them where nobody's targeting them at all. Uh, and I like, in particular, strategic flexibility. So a deck that can win in a variety of different ways. It's one of the things that attracted me to the Jeskai Breach deck in Modern. You know, that's a deck that can play an aggro game. It can play an attrition game. And it can also play the combo game. And I think one of my strengths as a Magic player is being able to uh, you know, roll with the texture of an individual game and say, you know, I have an, a plan in this matchup, but the way this specific game is playing out, I have to deviate from the plan in X way. I have to, you know, go hard for the combo or go completely away from the combo, whatever the case may be. So I value decks that are able to give me those decisions to make because I think I'm good at making those decisions. Makes a lot of sense to me. Well, Ross, thank you so much for taking some time to come on the show and talk about this, especially last minute. It was a huge help to us, and it was great to have you, and I hope the listeners enjoyed this episode with you. Yeah, I hope they did too. I had a blast being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Ross, if someone wants to find you and sort of maybe get more content or something from you, where can they go? What can we be linking in the bio? Uh, so best place for uh, everything I'm doing in Magic is just my Twitter account, at Ross Hunted's. Uh, you can also find my uh, podcast with Tan and Grace, MTG Rants, uh, wherever podcasts are found. 
Uh, we also have a Patreon for that if you want to support our work. Uh, it's just MTG Rants. Uh, so you can find that on Patreon. Uh, but main thing is to follow on Twitter because I've got got some things coming along the pipeline, Mason, that people are going to want to want to hear about. Yeah, the pipeline's exciting. And they can find you once again on the Apex coverage, right? You just got back. <laughs> we like both just got back, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, and, you know, there's more of those events coming up. So that's another place where if you're interested yes. in Paper Magic, you want to check that out. And you can hear Ross talk about the games. Yeah, uh, uh, twitch.tv slash Apex Gaming. Uh, we've got another event coming up in October. I believe it's the, the last weekend of October, the 28th, 29th, something like that. Um, we're going to actually you know, bring uh, through Apex. We're going to have some Lorcana events coming up in October as well. Uh, I think I'm going to be tapped in to do some commentary for that. So if you're getting into the Lorcana, uh, you can find me there at Apex. And I also do commentary for Mana Traders with Corey Baumeister. We are commentating the next Mana Traders event at the end of this month, uh, the last weekend of September. And that is going to be a vintage event. So if you want to hear me commentate some vintage, uh, you can watch me at... Uh, their Twitch channel, which is just Mana Traders, I believe. Yeah, you know, our last guest, uh, I think I think Dom came on before Jerry, but Dom, if you love Dom, he's probably going to be crushing Vintage. He's just been crushing it basically every weekend until he queued for Worlds because now he's just, you know, all in on doing the best at Worlds. But I'm sure once he's done with that, he'll just go back to, you know, changing four decks in every Vintage, uh, four cards in every Vintage deck and just crushing the format. So you're going to tune in for that. It's going to be a fun time. Uh, yeah, he plays Underworld Breach, so we're rooting for him too. Yeah, he has two Yogwills in his deck. It's crazy. Uh, anyways, Ooh. Ross, thank you so much. And we will see you all next week for another episode of CCMTG.